Well, good morning, everyone. Turn to your neighbor with a big smile and welcome them. Tell them good morning. We have some, some of our church family with us today from a long way away. Gerald and Carol, would you stand up, please, and remain standing? Uh, say good morning to them. <clears throat> Gerald and Carol came here as seminary students 25 years ago and got to be a part of our church family. And I've got to stay in their house in Tanzania, which is really cool. And they split time between there and working in Central Asia. And we're so grateful for them. At the conclusion of this service, they'll be in the lobby. So please go up and hug them and tell them how grateful you are for them. Stretch your hand out. Let's pray for them. Father, the scripture says how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. And Lord, we ask that you'd bless your servants, that you would strengthen them, give them refreshment, open doors. We pray for more and more women of peace, men and women of peace to come that will open the gospel to many more regions. But use this family for your glory in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Now we have a special speaker today, Joel Rosenberg. He's right over here. Say good morning to Joel. Uh, he is speaking again tonight at 6.30 in this room. And one of the exciting things is a lot, most of the time will be question and answer. And there's really tough questions and tough answers that uh, we're going to hear tonight. So come back tonight. And uh, he is a New York Times bestselling author. He's a lover of Israel, an observer of the times. We have his latest book. He's written a bunch of New York Times bestselling books. The latest, we've got about 40 left, and they're autographed. And there are 20, what are they, $20,000 a piece? Is that, is that what they were? They're 20 bucks. And so it's first come, first serve. We've got 30 to 40 left. Now, before I bring him up, let me tell you how life works. Can I do that? This is how life works. Let's make it simple. If you love Jesus, you will have a good life. Is that true or false? You will have a meaningful life. Let's put it that way. <laughs> An adventuresome life. A rewarding life. And if you love Jesus, you will learn to love the scriptures. True? And if you learn to love the scriptures, you will learn to love prayer. True? And if you learn to love prayer, you will, you will love to share your faith and tell people about Jesus. True? And if you do that, you will love the nations of the earth because people that have never heard deserve at least one chance to hear. True? And if you love all those things, it will circle back and you'll learn to love Israel because they are the first nation, the apple of God's eye, and all of our blessings came from them. So Brother Joel has a great... He's placed strategically by the Father to help us understand what the Lord is doing. So would you give him a round of encouragement as he comes up? And Father, I just ask for your, your servant, our brother, that you would just bless him today, fill him, strengthen him, use him in the task you've given him to do, and use him in this city in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Steve. Thank you. What a joy to be with you all this morning. I'm grateful for the chance. This is only my second time in Kentucky, so it's, uh, it's an honor to, you, you obviously love the nations and you love lots of different people groups to invite um, a Yankee uh, to Kentucky, so I appreciate it very much. Uh, though I was born and raised in New York, um, my wife and, uh, and I raised our sons in Virginia, so that made us a little bit of a southerner, I guess. And, um, and over the last seven years, we've been living in Israel. Uh, we made Aliyah seven years ago. That's the process of becoming a citizen of Israel. And uh, it's because I'm Jewish on my father's side, 
uh, though I'm Gentile on my mom's side, but under the Jewish portion of the program, uh, that gave me the right to return, as it were, as God is drawing Jewish people back to the land of Israel, um, just as he promised in the prophecies uh, throughout the scriptures. Um, seven years. It's been a fascinating journey. Uh, uh, my boys have seen it as a tribulation. Uh, it's been, uh, it, it's challenging. You know, you remember when the Jews left Egypt to head to the promised land, then they were like, no, it's too hard. We want to go back. That was to slavery. My, par- my kids just wanted to go back to Northern Virginia, right? Uh, it's hard. You know, most Jews, when they make Aliyah to Israel, it's because they're fleeing from current or imminent or perceived threat to them as Jews, right? They don't feel safe. They don't feel secure in the countries where they are living, in Europe, Eastern Europe, Asia, um, uh, Middle East, or where where have you. And so they they come back to Israel, and whatever challenges they face in Israel, they think, well, you know, it's difficult here in Israel, but at least, thank God, I'm not in, you know, Iran or in you know, in Yemen or in uh, Russia, where people were uh, threatening me and beating me up and stealing my stuff. And, you know, at least I'm in Israel. Americans can't say that. American Jews who make Aliyah, who become citizens of Israel, you know, they can't say, oh, my life was so much, they were so horrible in the United States, and we didn't have any freedom, we didn't have opportunity, we didn't have a, uh, you know, uh, uh, safety. No, that's not true. So you could expect, kids to want to go back to the, the epicenter of freedom and opportunity, the pinnacle of, of human society and all of, all of history. Um, and that's certainly been the case. Though my, my sons all wanted to do it when we sensed that the Lord was telling us to do it, and we'd been praying about it, and we went. But it, but it has been challenging. And of course, so we have four sons, okay? Uh, God did not give Lynn and myself the gift of raising teenage daughters, okay? We just, the Lord looked at us and went, I don't think that's going to be a good idea. We're grateful for all of you who are raising uh, daughters, whether, uh, and especially through those teenage years. Bless your hearts. And I mean that, I mean that as a northerner, by the way, where we really mean bless you. Like, I know here in the south and maybe further south, Texas, whatever, when you say bless your heart, you're really trying to say something like, you know, that guy's ugly as sin, bless his heart, you know, or she's as dumb as a post, bless her heart. You know, it's sort of a way of zinging someone. But in the North, we really mean that. We really bless you. But uh, those who are raising daughters. But we got four sons, and we got, so we have Caleb, Jacob, Jonah, and Noah. 28, 26, 24, 17. Now, I know you're already going, well, you seem to have a gap between Jonah and Noah of quite a few years. Why did you have a Noah? And I say, well, because Jesus said in Matthew 24 that he's not coming back again till the days of Noah. So we thought, if we're holding him back, you know, maybe we'd better have a Noah. And so, just so you know, uh, he's, he's around and, um, and you're living in the days of Noah. So if you, if you forget everything else from this message, and you probably will, just remember we're living in the days of Noah. And Jesus said he would come back when, uh, when we were in that zone. I know you've got an ark here too, so you understand Noah and uh, all the rest. So <laughs> that's good. Um, we are, um, I want to talk this morning about, oh, by, oh, I should mention, so, you know, Caleb, Jacob, Jonah and Noah. So you have a kid named Jonah. Of course he doesn't want to be doing what God wants and wants to go back uh, in the other direction as far away from where God is calling him to. But, uh, but by God's grace, he has brought us through a lot of the challenges um, uh, that are involved with, I mean, we, you know, we, we weren't going over there to join a gym. We weren't going over there to just hang out for a little while. We, were, we sold our house. We we, we, we left the country that God had raised us in, and we moved to Israel because God told us to, and, uh, and that was challenging. But um, the boys have learned Hebrew. Uh, Lynn and I, less so, were classic immigrant parents going, wait, what did they say? What, what, what did they say? Um, two of our sons have served in the Israeli army, uh, both in combat units. Jonah, who is quite the strong cup of tea, uh, he, as you might expect, uh, but he served in a special forces unit in Israel. And, um, and uh, just got married. So two of the four are married, two to go. And Jonah just got married this summer uh, to a Cuban, Jewish, American follower of Jesus. So she's a strong cup of tea too. So this is a good thing. And, um, and so they'll be serving in Israel very soon uh, with a ministry that we started called the Joshua Fund. And I'll tell you more about that in a few moments. 
The, the topic I want to talk about this morning that's uh, on my heart is, is this. It's a question. Is there hope for the church in the Middle East? Is there hope for the church in the Middle East? And I say it because, uh, well, let's, let's front load. The answer is yes. Okay, so you can go get a cup of coffee or chat with your friends in the lobby. And I, now you know what, what, I, what I'm going to say. Yes, there is hope. But I want to explore it, and the reason is because it's been a horrific 20 years uh, in the Middle East. Uh, we've been there, living there full-time for seven. We started the ministry of the Joshua Fund 15 years ago. I've been writing political thrillers about horrors and future horrors uh, in the Middle East uh, since my first book, which I began writing in January of 2001. The first page of The Last Jihad puts the readers inside the cockpit of a jet plane that's been hijacked by radical Islamist terrorists. It's coming in on a kamikaze attack mission into an American city. That's how the book begins. And I wrote that almost nine months before the horrific events of September 11th, 2001. As the novel continues, my fictional president decides not only to go attack uh, you know, all these radical Islamist terror cells in the Middle East, but he decides he has to remove Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq. That's the book I was finishing on September 11th, 2001, in the townhouse where we were living at the time, 15 minutes away from Washington Dulles Airport, where at that moment, Flight 77 was being hijacked, turned around, flown over our house, and into the Pentagon. When the book uh, was released in November of 2002, um, it, it, it became a huge bestseller, uh, number one on Amazon, 11 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. I did 160 radio, TV, and print interviews in a two-month period as people were saying, how could you have unknown, how could you have sensed what was coming? Now, there are differences in that book between what really happened. The, uh, the jet plane is a business jet, a Gulfstream 4, not a commercial jet. Um, uh, the, the, the radical Islamists are coming out of Canada, an airport in Canada, not New York or Boston. Um, the attack site is Denver, Colorado, not New York, uh, Pennsylvania, or Washington. So there were differences. I'm not a prophet. Uh, I'm not a psychic. I'm not a clairvoyant. I didn't call Miss Cleo in the middle of the night. Some of you are too young for Miss Cleo, but uh, she was like, you could call a 900 number, pay a lot of money per minute to get your future. Somehow, however, Miss Cleo, Cleo, with all her psychic powers, didn't see the IRS coming to, for her for tax evasion. Didn't, couldn't quite see that in her little crystal ball, but, you know, whatever. So I'm not, you know, those are not, that's not me. Uh, U.S. News and World Report called me a modern Nostradamus. I'm not. If I was so prophetic, the book would have been out a year before 9-11, not after. The point is that I was running a war game, a, a, a thought exercise, a, a worst-case scenario. That's what novels are, at least political thrillers. They are worst-case scenarios of things that you pray to God never happened, but they could. And what if they did? What would it look like? What would it feel like? That's what the last jihad was. And it hit closer to reality than, um, than I certainly anticipated. But my fear, my concern, having worked for a number of U.S. and Israeli leaders, including uh, Prime Minister of Israel Benjamin Netanyahu, um, I believed that if American leaders didn't understand the threats in the Middle East, then we were likely to be blindsided here at home. And in fact, that's the theme of much of my work, including the new nonfiction book, Enemies and Allies, which is this, to misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. Okay, think about that. To misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. On December 7th, 1941, Americans were blindsided by Imperial Japan at Pearl Harbor. We didn't understand how much they hated us, and I think there was not insignificant amount of racism that thought, well, they can hate us all they want. They're, we've got a Pacific between us and them. There's no way they have the will or the technology or the capacity to come get us. We were wrong. We were blindsided. We were blindsided 20 years ago on September 11th. You know, Osama bin Laden had already declared war on us. He'd already sent people to blow up the World Trade Center in 1993. They failed. 
um, he had been attacking U.S. embassies and the U.S. warship. And, and, if, you, and, and if you read the 9-11 Commission report, you realize that all the information was there. We, we just couldn't imagine that they were going to do this. In fact, the conclusion of the 9-11 Commission was this, that, that the attacks were less, not so much a failure of intelligence as a failure of imagination. We, we knew what was happening, but we just couldn't imagine that people would do this. They would turn, that they would sacrifice themselves and turn a plane into a missile and kill 3,000 innocent civilians. It just didn't dawn on our leadership that that was even possible. It had dawned on me. I was finishing the book about this. Because I, and my books are based on, not on psychic, you know, insights. They're based on an understanding biblically of good and evil in this world, right? In, in our Western age, most Western leaders are very secular-minded and they're very sophisticated and intellectual and, and they don't believe that evil is a, a thing. And, and they don't, they, 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 the notion of using the term evil just sounds, you know, anathema to them. That's the problem. To misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. And, and on 9-11 and in the 20 years since, we, not just the United States, but our allies in, in, in Europe and around the world have been blindsided by radical Islamism. Look what's happened just over the last 20 years. Uh, Satan has been trying to rob, kill, and destroy Jews, Christians, Muslims, and certainly the church throughout the Middle East. We've seen rocket wars against Israel. We've seen suicide bombers blowing up Israeli cafes and school buses and and, and elementary schools. Um, We've seen war in Afghanistan and in Iraq. We've seen the Arab Spring, uh, huge revolutions that have overturned whole societies, whole nations, um, we've seen uh, countries, Arab countries, implode into civil war in Li- Libya, in Yemen, in Syria. We've seen the Muslim Brotherhood, a radical Islamist terrorist organization, take over the nation of Egypt and set into motion a reign of terror. And then we saw Muslim generals in the Egyptian army move to remove the uh, Muslim Brotherhood and liberate 100 million Egyptians. Uh, and set them free. But in the process, churches were burned down. In the process, uh, Christians in Egypt were beheaded. Uh, They were tortured. They were killed. Uh, Throughout the region, we saw the rise of the Islamic State, ISIS, in Iraq, in Syria. We saw five million people, mostly Muslims, but also Christians and Yazidis, living under the reign of terror of the Islamic Caliphate, the ISIS Caliphate. We saw people being burned in cages. We saw Christians being crucified and burned alive and beheaded and tortured. We saw the United Nations and the United States Congress and and the Obama administration declare what ISIS was doing against Christians in particular as genocide, and it was. It's been dark the last 20 years in the Middle East, and yet something dramatic is changing evil is certainly rising and darkness is falling in a very dramatic way. And I describe this in Enemies and Allies. At the same time, however, four Arab nations have made peace with Israel. Why? There's a tectonic change in how Arab leaders and Arab people are seeing Israel. They used to see us for the last 75 years as the enemy. Now they're starting to see us as friends, as allies. Why? Turkey is a NATO ally, but now it's moving to the dark side. It's moving to an an alliance with Russia and Iran. Why? What's going on? And what's going on with the church? And in the midst of all of that, and of course Iran, Iran's leadership is is just two or three months away right now, according to uh, the latest intelligence assessments. Iran's leadership is just two or three months away from building nuclear weapons having the fuel to do it. Now, maybe it'll take a few more months once they have the military-grade enriched uranium to then finalize operation, fully operational warheads and then maybe a little more time to attach those to missiles. But the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. And, and Iran's leadership 
wants to do two things. They want to annihilate Israel, and they want to annihilate the United States. And I write about this in the book. If you look at what the leadership of Iran says, they, they consider Israel, which is the center of Judaism, as the little Satan. That's what they call Israel. And, they, and they've publicly said, we want to wipe Israel off the map. That's a second Holocaust. Okay, there's six and a half million Jews in Israel today. And if and when the supreme leader of Iran can build nuclear weapons, attach them successfully to high-speed ballistic missiles, the supreme leader of Iran could do in six minutes what it took Adolf Hitler almost six years to do, and that is to kill more than six million Jews. That's what they want. They want a second Holocaust. They want to wipe Israel off the map. But that's only their penultimate objective. Israel is only the little Satan. The United States, the epicenter of Christendom in their view, is the great Satan. And they don't want to just take out a few buildings. They want to take out whole cities. Okay, so what we're looking at, if we're blindsided again, very well could be a nuclear 9-11. Okay, that's the danger. That's the evil. That's the darkness in the Middle East today, 20 years after 9-11. Is there any hope for the church in the middle of all that? Yes. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to begin in verse 13. Again, Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible translation. This is the famous passage where Jesus is talking to his disciples in northern Israel at a a very famous place called Caesarea Philippi. And I hope that you'll come with Pastor Steve uh, to Israel in the not-too-distant future as we eventually, Lord willing, (laughs) reopen for business. It's like living, living in Israel right now is like living in Disney World, but there aren't any guests, okay? (laughs) There aren't any lines uh, for the rides. And in that sense, it's kind of nice for us as citizens. But of course, uh, Israelis are suffering because there's no tourism. And and of course, you're uh, grieving because you don't have a chance to come. And we want you to come. And Caesarea Philippi when you come. But okay, here we are. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Let's pause there for a moment. This is the central question of humanity. This is the central question of your life and mine. And it's the central question in the Middle East as well as everybody else in the world. Who do people think that Jesus is? Well, Muslims think that he's a prophet. He's revered in the Quran, okay? Jesus is described in the Quran as being the son of Mary, who was a virgin and gave virgin birth to Jesus. That's in the, that's in the, that's in the Quran. They believe, Muslims believe that Jesus did miracles, that he taught very powerfully, that he, they, the, the, the Quran says that Jesus is the Messiah, But they deny that he's God. They deny the Trinity. They don't believe that Jesus was, that that he died on the cross, was buried, and on the third day rose again. Okay? So they have a high reverence for Jesus as a prophet. They don't know him as God. They don't know him as the Savior and, and as the only way to eternal life. Who do Jews think that Jesus is? Well, it depends which Jewish person you're talking to. But for the last 2,000 years, our team has not understood who he is. Right? Right? We know from John chapter 1, he, the Messiah, Jesus, came to his own. But his own received him not. My team didn't receive Jesus, by and large. But to as many as who did receive him, you, the Gentile people, To you all, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Praise God. Our rejection of Jesus opened a door for you. The gospel started in Jerusalem, went to Judea, Samaria, and came to Lexington, the ends of the earth. (laughs) But Jesus is not coming back to Lexington. 
Sorry, to, in case that was a news flash for you. Uh, he's coming to Jerusalem. And, and we're going to talk about the hope of Christ. Lord, are you going to draw Jewish people into the kingdom? Are you going to draw Muslim people into the kingdom? You're, doing, you're drawing people from all over the world, not just in Lexington, but in China. More, you know, the, the, the communists burned down the church in China 50, 60 years ago, and yet there's now approximately 100 million Chinese followers of Jesus. Why? Because they're being offered Learjets and Rolexes? No. God's spirit is moving in communist China. In Iran, more Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and leaving Islam than in any other country in the world. There's a great awakening going on in Iran. All right, we'll get to that more. But who do people say that Jesus is? The Muslims have a view. Jews have a view. My father... When he was raised, an Orthodox Jew in Brooklyn, he didn't know Jesus was the Messiah. The only time he heard the term Jesus Christ Almighty when his father was beating him. That's how he first heard the name of Jesus. How did my father come to faith in Jesus in 1973? And when he did, it's pretty dramatic. I'm not going to tell you the story right now. Sorry. But it's an exciting story, obviously to me, but it's exciting in, in part because the Holy Spirit just opened his eyes. My father thought in 1973 he was the first Jew since the Apostle Paul who believed in Jesus. <laughs> never heard of a Jewish person who believed in Jesus. He'd never met one. And in 1973, there weren't that many. What's going on? How did he come to faith? How did I come to faith? How did my sons come to faith? People have lots of different views, and, and Jews have a lot of different views of who Jesus is. But most of them don't know that he's the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And then the, but the more important question is not how other people see Jesus. It's how you see Jesus. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you know him? Have you received him as Savior, as God, as Messiah, as King, as sovereign over your life, over the world? Well, Simon Peter answers the question, and in rare form, he gets it right. Bless his heart. I'm saying that in a northern version. You, he said to Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Wow, we're not used to Peter getting things right. So this is pretty good. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Right? He, he has a little bit of Jonah streak in him too. He's the son of Jonah. Of course he didn't get it all the time. The, the, the foot-shaped mouth that Simon Peter had. But, um, <laughs> blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Nobody persuaded you. No human being persuaded you, convinced you, Simon Peter, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the living God, that he's the son of God, that he is God, that he's part of the Trinity, that he's the savior, that he's the sovereign. Well, how did he understand it? Well, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven revealed it. And Jesus says, I say to you that you are Peter, Petra, Petros. You're a little stone. And upon this rock, you're a little stone, but this rock of your confession of who I really am, upon that confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. We are not building the church. Peter was not building the church. You and I are invited into what Jesus himself is doing. He, Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's why we have hope for the church in Lexington, in America, in China, in Iran, in Israel, throughout the Arab world and, and in every other country because Jesus is jealous for what he's doing. Jesus is doing it and he invites us to be part of it. The question is, will we be? If we've answered correctly, yes, who do we think Jesus is? And we're right, and we've been born again, and we've received him by faith. Then the question is, if you love me, will you obey my commands, right? Will you obey the Great Commission and go and make disciples of all nations? All nations. 
even the unfriendly nations, even the dangerous nations, even the dictatorships, even the, the deadly nations. Will you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded and knowing that Christ is with us even to the very end of the age. There is hope for the church in the Middle East because of Christ. It's his church and he will build it and he will not allow Satan to win, okay? That's a good thing and we need to remember it. I live in a part of the world where there are very few believers and yet, and so every person we get a chance to share the gospel with, that's exciting to us. And every person we get to invest in and, and disciple, that's exciting. When we see a new church planted, even if it's 15, 20 people, that's exciting. When we see the spirit moving, that's exciting. Because we're starting from a very low baseline. You have a very different situation here in the United States. You start from a very high baseline and you see apostasy. You see people turning away from the gospel. You see people uh, betraying Christ, betraying their spouses, betraying their children, betraying their country. This is part of the birth pangs that the, that the Lord Jesus spoke of that would be signs of the, as we get closer to the return of Christ, right? Spend some time this afternoon in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark chapter 13, as Jesus gives a list of things to watch for that will be indicators when he gets closer and closer to his return. And he describes these things, persecution of the believers, wars, insurrection, revolutions, uh, natural disasters, uh, 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 persecution of the believers, people's love turn, uh, turning cold towards one another, people betraying one another. Uh, the rebirth of the nation of Israel as one of the positives. Uh, but as you see these things, and I would say, check, 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 check. We're seeing these things happen. Um, but realize these are what Jesus called the birth pangs. Now, having had four children, my wife did all the work, admittedly, uh, I, I, I came to understand birth pangs. Not as well as her, admittedly. But when she would grab my hand uh, upon delivery, right, and the tr contraction would come, and she would squeeze and squeeze and squeeze, and the blood would drain from my hand, and I'd watch that monitor as the intensity of that contraction was, was, uh, was becoming worse and worse. And, and that, now I'm not saying I was experiencing pain anything like her. I just said, I don't want to start a riot here. I'm just saying that's my little way as a, as a husband, uh, as a guy, to understand what a contraction is. And I know that as we got closer and closer to the moment that we wanted, the moment of delivery, right, of what we've been praying for and hoping for, the pain got worse. The pressure got more intense. Contraction, but then release. And you go, oh, thank you, Lord. Uh, yes, honey, that's nice. You need some ice chips, some dab your forehead. Yes. Yes, yes. Ready to go. Yes, I'm ready. Contraction, release, contraction, release. And as you get closer, the contractions are longer. They're harder. They're more painful. The release points are shorter. But that's what we've been seeing over the last 20 years. And, and, you know, not just, but I'm just taking this snapshot of time from 9-11 to today. At the moment, we're mostly in a release moment. We're seeing Arabs make peace with Israel. We're seeing an expansion of religious freedom. I was with the president of Egypt, and he said to me, Joel, I want you to bring a a delegation of evangelical leaders because I'm building, as a Muslim, I'm building the largest church in the history of the Middle East and I'm going to give it to the Christians of Egypt on Christmas Eve. Would you be here to celebrate with us for that event? I'm like, mm, let me check my calendar. <laughs> yes, I would love to do that. I tell that story in Enemies and Allies. It's extraordinary. He, President el-Sisi of Egypt has rebuilt at government expense every church that was burned down by the Muslim Brotherhood, every church that was damaged, every church that was destroyed. This is a Muslim. He had, he, neither he nor any Egyptian leader in history had ever invited followers of Jesus Christ to have a meeting with him in, or with any president in the palace. He invited me to bring a delegation of Christian leaders twice, not just once, but twice. And I've actually met with him five times. I tell those stories in the book. This has never happened before. Why is it happening now? Because we're in a release moment. Why did the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS, arguably the most consequential, but also the most controversial leader in the Middle East, why did he invite me? to bring a delegation, not once, but twice. 
the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia told me, Joel, do you realize that no Christian leaders have ever been invited to the palace in the 300 years that the Saud family has controlled the Arabian Peninsula? It's never happened. You're the first. And, and okay, so that's amazing, but why me? A Jew, an American, an Israeli, an evangelical, two sons who've served in the Israeli army. What is the Saudi government doing inviting me? I told the crown prince, you could throw a dart out the window in the United States and hit any one of the 60 million other evangelicals who are not Jewish and aren't Zionists, who aren't Israelis, who don't have sons who've served in the Israeli military. I'm very honored that you would invite me. And I said, by the way, and I, it wasn't just me, I always brought a delegation of evangelical leaders with me. And we sat there with the crown prince. Remember, Saudi Arabia, that's where Islam comes from, from Arabia. Uh, the, the leaders of Saudi Arabia are considered the custodians of the two holy mosques, that's how they put it. And, and Mecca and Medina is under their purview. We had to challenge him and say, you're making many sweeping, positive, important reforms, but there's not a single church on Saudi soil. You have 1.4 million Christians, foreign workers and their families, admittedly, but, they, but there's 1.4 million Christians in Saudi Arabia. There's not a single church on Saudi soil. I said, there's 700 operating, freely operating churches in the United Arab Emirates, where we just came from. President El-Sisi is building the largest church in the history of the Middle East and giving it to Christians on Christmas Eve. When will you be ready to allow churches to be built on Saudi soil? That conversation was on the record. It's in the book. We, we said to the crown prince, you know, I said, I'm guessing the term evangelical is not really a term used much here in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Is that a, a fair assessment? And he laughed and said, yeah, that's probably fair. I said, well, we've got a, uh, an ordained pastor, part of our delegation. Could he take a moment and share with you what is an evangelical Christian and what is it that we believe? And he said, absolutely, please. That conversation was on the record. It's in the book. Imagine, now, right above his head was a Saudi flag with two swords crossed. Uh, and... If you were guilty, if you were accused and found guilty of proselytizing the future king of Saudi Arabia, it's a capital offense. But he invited me as an evangelical. I asked him if he'd like to understand what that term means. He said yes. We had a conversation. We asked him as we ask every Arab leader, how can we pray for you? The Bible commands us to pray for kings and governors and all those in authorities. How can we pray for you? These leaders share their prayer request with us, and then we pray for them in the name of Jesus. What kind of planet is this? What kind of moment is this? This is a, this is a release moment, but the contractions are coming, right? So how do we use this time wisely? Well, I'm encouraged by what's happening in the Middle East. I see God strengthening his church, and one of the things that we're, my wife and I have done 15 years ago, we started a ministry called the Joshua Fund, this is a ministry designed to educate and mobilize Christians to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus according to the Abrahamic covenant, uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, right? Where God says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And we're like, well, we know which side we want to be on. We want to be on the blessing side. What does it mean to bless Israel and her neighbors? We certainly do humanitarian relief through the local churches so they can provide food and other relief supplies to Holocaust survivors, to widows, to orphans, to victims of war and terror, to love them unconditionally the way Jesus did and the way he, Jesus commanded us to. Matthew 25, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. This is the, this is the life of a believer, especially in the Middle East where very few Muslims, very few Jews know the love of Jesus. We also fund Bible colleges and pastor retreats and pastor training and Bible distribution and all kinds of other projects to strengthen our brothers and sisters in Israel in the Palestinian territories, and in five neighboring Arab countries, Lebanon, 
Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Egypt. Yes, there's a wider territory that needs to be reached. We only have a limited budget. But over 15 years, the Lord has invested more than $80 million to strengthen the church. And I can tell you, people are coming to Christ. More Jews have come to faith in Jesus Christ in the last 40 or 50 years than in the last 2,000 years. When I was born in 1967, there were fewer than 2,000 followers of Jesus on the entire planet Earth. Fewer than 2,000. But today, based on research that the Joshua has helped fund and been involved with and barely could believe when the data came in, there are now more than 1 million Jewish followers of Jesus on the planet today. We've gone from 2,000 to a million. Now, there's almost 17 million Jews in the world, so we're not nearly enough, but where are we heading? We're heading towards a Romans eleven twenty six world where Paul tells us all Israel will be saved. That doesn't mean every single Jewish person will come to faith in Jesus and go to heaven. I don't have time. I, if, if, there's a me, if you can post the message from the previous uh, service, I, will, you know, I, I go into that in a little bit more detail. But we need to be sharing the gospel with Jewish people lovingly, respectfully. We're not trying to force them. This is not the Inquisition. It's not the Crusades. We're inviting them to meet their own Messiah. We're explaining it. We're, and, and how are they going to believe if no one tells them? Paul tells us this in Romans 10. How can they believe if they haven't heard? How can they hear if nobody tells them? How will someone tell them unless they're sent? And of course, we know sending means recruiting people, training people, equipping people, praying for people, investing financially in people, standing with people as they go do this work, especially nationals. That's what the Joshua Fund does. And we do that in the Muslim world as well. And God is moving. More Muslims have come to faith in Jesus Christ since 1960 than in the last 14 centuries combined. We are now north of 10 million Muslims who've come to faith in Jesus based on the best study. And that study was 10 years ago, but I'm just using those conservative numbers. Now, in a world of 1.8 billion people, Muslims, that's not enough, but we're going from almost nobody to 10 million and probably more. I would say it's not unreasonable to think we're double that number or more. God is starting. We're in the early stages of the great awakening of Jews and Muslims. And the Joshua Fund is about investing in these people. And what is my job? I'm a failed political consultant. I'm one of the few Jews born in America that didn't get the financial gene. Okay, I'm not your stockbroker. I'm not your hedge fund manager. I'm not uh, your accountant. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I don't run a movie studio. I used to be bitter about this. Lord, there's all these great roles that you give the Jewish people. You gave me nothing. You gave me failure. I just make things up for a living. This is my job. My job is to cast vision, to, to teach, to write, to communicate, to help educate people. And it is an important role. And I'm grateful to serve people who have better skif- skills and giftings than me and who are on the front lines. It's, it's my greatest joy. And I just wanted you to know these things this morning. That Yes, there is hope for the church in the Middle East. And the question is, how are we going to help? How are we going to encourage I'll leave you with four words, very quickly, and I hope you'll remember these or write them down. Learn, pray, give, and go. Okay? I don't want you to feel helpless in this this time. I want you to feel encouraged, and I want you to be thinking, Lord, what is my role? If you can answer correctly who Jesus is and you've received him into your heart and you've been born again, now the question is, okay, now what? Lord, what is my role? It's to learn. It's to pray. It's to give. It's to go. Learn. Well, that's one of the reasons I create resources, like Enemies and Allies, like uh, my other work. Uh, uh, We've launched two websites last year, All Israel News and All Arab News. We are tracking the main headlines. We're doing exclusive interviews with the newsmakers of the region. We're doing original reporting. We're doing uh, original insightful analysis from a biblical worldview on what's happening in Israel, Iran, and the rest of the region in real time. Okay, All Israel news, all Arab news. And if you go to those sites, you can sign up for the free email newsletter. It'll send you the 
the, the headlines right to your phone, right to your, your desktop or your laptop. I hope, the, why? Because we're trying to create resources. The Joshua Fund, joshuafund.com. So learn, pray, okay? The more you learn about what's happening, the more you'll know how to pray. As you read this book, you're gonna, I'm gonna take you inside to sit down with Benjamin Netanyahu, the just recently um, uh, former now prime minister of Israel. What is his perspective on what's going on in the Middle East? You're going to sit with all these leaders. There's not a book out there like this, certainly not by a Christian. So as you learn, you're going to pray for these leaders. You're going to pray. You're going to meet local Christians and see how they're doing in the Middle East today. And I hope that you'll, the more you learn, the more you'll pray. And give if you want to be involved. And you say, look, I'd love to be involved in advancing the Great Commission and strengthening our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and caring for the poor and the needy and widows and orphans. But I, you know, I've never even been to Israel or I've never been to these countries. I wouldn't know the first thing. I wouldn't know whom to trust. I hope we will be a trusted resource for you. That the Joshua Fund would be a way, like a mutual fund. You invest in us, we invest in this work and you'll learn more at joshuafund.com. So learn, pray, give, and go. Now, yes, Israel is closed right now. So you can't go, but... Talk to Steve. Uh, pray about the moment when you can go. Because it's one thing to stand with Israel and our neighbors, uh, but to stand with Israel politically, spiritually, prayerfully, that's awesome. But come stand in Israel. Come up to Caesarea Philippi. Come to Jerusalem. Come stand on the Mount of Olives where Jesus is going to return one day. Maybe soon. I hope soon. And, it, and, and coming there, look, you don't have to. Well, I would love to invite you. And I would tell you that it, it's like, it, it's like the, when people come to Israel as believers, it, the, the whole, the, all their faith comes alive in, in, in a, such a richer way. It, it's, it's almost as though you're reading the Bible in black and white, and suddenly it's in technicolor. It's like you're watching your favorite movie on your phone, and now it's on IMAX. It's, it's just a stunning thing to think, I'm walking where Jesus walked where the disciples walked, where the mission was given to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Look, if you can't come because of money, time, caring for children, caring for parents, COVID, whatever, look, don't worry, okay? Because you're going to be there a thousand times during the millennial kingdom. God says, if you don't come to Jerusalem, during that millennial kingdom era where Jesus is reigning over the entire world, then he's not going to reign on your crops. So I think you'll be there, and we look forward to welcoming you, but it is fun to see it now and to have a, a sense of what God is doing. Yes, the enemy is on the move to rob, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. And it, I find it the greatest joy and the greatest privilege to be involved in what Christ is doing because... He's building his church. He is building his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Steve, would you come up and close us in prayer? It's been my joy and honor to be with you. I hope you'll come with some questions tonight to our Q&A service. God bless you. So we close our service. We're going to do two things. We're going to have a time of response. And then second, we'll have a final time of worship, the one who loves us and died for us. So here's what the time of response looks like. If you're here today and you've never given your heart to Jesus, why not today? Get right with the Lord. Let him forgive you of your sins. Surrender. Stop fighting. Stop waiting. Just give him your heart, whether you're 12 or 82. Give him your heart. When the service is over, come right over there, and some of us will help you do that. Secondly, during our time of response, let's pray for the nation of Israel. And I would ask all you folks, your intercessors, it may be crowded out here, but take your time, but come to the altar and let's pray. Let's intercede for the chosen people, the first nation, the apple of God's eye. Let's ask the Lord to bring stability. Ask the Lord to bless them. Ask the Lord to protect them. Ask the Lord to open their hearts 
to the one that came for them first. As we pray, God will honor your prayers. So join me as we pray. So please come. During this time of response, listen to the Lord and obey him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the children of Abraham. Thank you, Father, for the holy scriptures that came from them that taught us your way. Lord, we as Gentiles had no business being grafted in, but in your mercy you grafted us in to your people. Thank you for the body of Christ that came from your chosen people that is growing all over the world. And we thank you that heaven was open to us Gentiles because of our Jewish Messiah, Savior, Lord, and King, Jesus Christ. We honor you, Lord. Lord, we want to bless your people. We commit to bless your people. And we commit to bless the nations around them, Lord. 
Lord, may this be a new day for our city and a new day for our church family. And that, Lord, many of us in this room will be called in new and surprising ways. May we say yes to you. Still an attitude of worship as the rest of the worship team comes out. We're going to sing a prayer unto the Lord. And I want you to just not sing. I want you to worship. And I want this prayer to be the prayer of your heart for these wonderful but difficult days. sing a song called The Blessing. Can you all hear me? So we're going to sing a song called The Blessing, and um, it is from number six. Um, I felt like the Lord laid it on my heart this morning, and not this morning, but this week, and I looked up number six and realized that that is the prayer that Moses told Aaron um, to pray over the Israelites. And he told Aaron and his sons, I want, to, I want you to pray and bless the, the Israelites with the name of God, that the Lord would bless them and keep them and make, their, make his face shine upon them and be gracious unto them. And so, um, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Jesus has done, he has made us priests. And um, we can play, pray that this morning that the Israelites um, wouldn't just have the name, the name of God over them, but they would have the name of Jesus. Amen. So could you all stand as we worship together and sing this out?
gracious to you, the Lord turned his face toward you.
the Lord. Give the Lord glory. Give the Lord glory. Jesus, we love you and honor you, and we're so grateful that you would adopt us as your sons and daughters. We bless you. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. There's people here that will pray for you. If you need ministry, you need prayer for anything, let people pray. Slip out, pick up your children. Have a great afternoon. God bless you. form where you can let us know how we can pray for you. Thanks again for tuning.